Hello, and thank you for joining the North Point Church Lutes podcast. We're excited that you found us, and we pray that you'll come back often and listen again and again. Each week, we upload the content preached in one of the North Point Church services here in Lutz, and we pray that you'll come back and listen and marinate on what it is that God was teaching us. The more that these messages get into your heart, the more that you have the opportunity to be obedient and allow them to change your life. We believe that God is real and His Word is true, and that has the power to change your life. So let's lean in together and see what it is that God has in store for you today. Good morning. I see, uh, I see some shocked faces. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're in this together, everybody. This is real life. This is happening right now. My name, is, uh, my name is Jason. I am a pastor and an elder here at North Point. And I wanted to thank Pastor Steve and the other elders for inviting me to speak today. This is a great honor. It's humbling and it's terrifying. Um, we're going to be continuing the Galatians series today. And um, if you would turn your your Bibles to Galatians 5, that's where we're going to be focusing today's message. But before we get there, I want to start by asking a question that Paul asks the Galatians in uh, chapter 3. He says, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So this is the question. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, as you remember, as you've been reading, because they have deviated from the gospel that he gave them. Uh, Specifically, they were teaching this version of grace and works mixed, uh, specifically that uh, new believers had to be circumcised. And so he's writing them to correct this teaching. And um, this is the question, because when you you look at this uh, passage, is it still up? It's not up. Well, when Paul uses the word spirit, he uses the capital S. Right? So we're talking about God. We're talking about the Holy Spirit when he says, capital S, Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals truth in believers. He dwells within us. He guides us. He encourages us. He convicts us of sin in our life, which leads to repentance and sanctification. The Holy Spirit guides us into communion with God. And so the Galatians know this because Paul has taught them this. And by deviating back to trusting in works... They're doing something against what he had taught. So this is a big deal. Do we trust in uh, works under the law to save us, or do we trust in grace? So we begin in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love." Remember, the leaders are making circumcision uh, a condition of salvation. They're adding this on top. And Paul was teaching them that they can't work their way to salvation. So you can see how this is a paradox. Um, John Chrysostom was an early church leader from the 4th century. And he once said that those who are circumcised out of a fear of breaking the law are distrusting the power of grace. 
By not fully trusting grace, the Galatians have now fallen from grace, right? The Greek for the word fallen here that Paul is using is ekpipto, which literally means to fall from a secure position. So think of like a sailor falling off of a ship into the ocean, and now he's floating helplessly. They have fallen from grace because they have turned towards works. This is, um, this is why Paul is treating this so severely in the letter. Um, by, by making this uh, uh, turn to grace, they're losing the, the benefit and the power of grace. Does that make sense? That's the old covenant. Jesus is bringing them something new. So let's continue to uh, verse 11. He says, But I, brothers, if I, brothers, still teach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. That's an interesting phrase, the offense of the cross. How could the cross be offensive? There's a clue here in Galatians 2, I'll read to you guys. It says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So think about that. Did Jesus sacrifice himself only for those people who could not keep the law? Could Jesus have given any more when he sacrificed himself? What is the offense of the cross? The offense of the cross is there to humble us and remind us of the great price that Jesus paid, that we could not do it on our, on our own, right? It humbles us to that. And there's a shame that comes from knowledge, knowing that that was what Jesus had to pay in order to save us. That's how far our sin had kept us from God. It makes us feel bad to think about that. There's a difference between Christians today. When we look at a cross, we like crosses. They remind us of our faith. They remind us of Jesus. We wear them on our clothes, on our hats. We tattoo them on our bodies. We have bumper stickers on our cars. We have jewelry, right? If you were to show an image of a cross to one of the early church followers, they would have thought immediately that Jesus had been tortured to death. Uh, They would have had an image in their mind of Jesus literally nailed to a cross, bloodied, disfigured, struggling for every breath he took and dying a very agonizing death. It would have been a horrifying thought and image in their mind. It would have been a heartbreaking image. For us to think that we could do anything on top of what Jesus has already done is the point. How how could we possibly add anything to what Jesus has done? Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a famous uh, preacher and theologian. You may have heard the name. He once said that the offense of the cross is there so that we do not let men trust in their own merits or their own values. We have a tendency to do that. We look at our lives and the way that we live as compared to other people, and we see great value in the things that we can do. There's a temptation there for us to think that those things are valuable in comparison to what Christ has done, their dirty rags, right? So this is the crux of the matter. We cannot do this on our own. We need a helper. Uh, This is why when Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper, and he's explaining to them that he's going to be leaving them soon, right? And they're confused and they're disheartened by this. And so he's trying to encourage them by saying it's actually to their benefit that he goes, right? If you look at John 14, verses 16 to 17, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. 
For he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is speaking about the new covenant here. Um, in the Old Testament, God actually references this, new, this time that's going to come where his people are going to have this new covenant with him. He talks about, in Jeremiah 31, putting his law within his people and literally writing it on their hearts. In Ezekiel 36, he talks about removing the heart of stone from his people and replacing it with a heart of flesh. A heart of stone representing um, a, a sort of an arrogant self-reliance that people have. Does that sound familiar? So a heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh, this indwelling of God within us. This is what happens when the Spirit takes up residence in the life of a believer. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit energizes our obedience to God. Right? He becomes in us this living fountain of divine water that wells up within us and guides us, and we have access to this resource all of the time. Any spiritual resource uh, that we would need is within us because of this. If you remember the conversation that Jesus has with that Samaritan woman at the well, and he asks her for a drink of water, in John 4, 13 to 14, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Galatians began their journey in the Spirit with access to this source. But by turning back to works out of a fear of breaking the law, they have deviated. And God does not take this lightly. There's a parallel to the Galatians in Jeremiah 2 that I wanted to share with you guys. The people have once again turned away from God and they are worshiping idols. This is a common theme in the Old Testament. And um, God is upset. And he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Catch this. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and instead hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can contain no water. So a cistern is a pool or a ditch that's been carved out of the rock, and it's used to hold water. You can catch rainwater. You can put water in it. It's not a source of water. It holds water. The only water in a cistern has been placed there, right? Um, It's an interesting image that God is giving us here because what he's saying is that by turning away from a fountain or a spring of water, a source of water, and turning to a cistern, they're turning to a container of water. They're turning to a broken container, in fact. A broken cistern leaches water back out into the ground and you can't actually get access to the water. This is an image of life turning from the Spirit back to ourselves. This is turning to self-reliance instead of obedience to God. Think of a uh, nature documentary um, of Africa. And Africa is normally this arid, dry environment, but during the monsoon season in Africa, you see these rains coming in and dropping just buckets of water everywhere. So much water, in fact, that the ground can't absorb it all, and you begin to see rivers forming in Africa you see these, uh, these deep lakes of clear, clean water. There's an image. Uh, do you guys see the image? I have a picture here to show you guys. So look at these big pools of water, right? 
And all these animals are coming out, and they're getting to this water, and they're drinking it, but everything's green, and everything's growing and lush and alive. It's thriving. But then the rains stop, and those waters begin to recede. Like a broken cistern, those waters begin to leach back into the ground, and the animals begin to thin out, and the ones that are left are sort of gathered around the edges of the water, sucking on wet dirt, fighting over that last drop. This is a vivid image of turning from a spring, a source of water. That that never runs out, and instead turning to a broken container. Why would we do that? As believers, why would we do that? There's a theological term for it. It's we're messed up. (laughs) We're we're pretty messed up. We have a sin problem. Um, Think about, you know, when you become a believer... A lot of times it happens at a low point in life where you see how bad life is and the problems that we have, and we're crying out for salvation. And we're at a low point in life. Not for everybody, but for a lot of us, that's what happens. When the Holy Spirit moves into us at that moment and becomes a dwelling within us, he's moving into sort of a broken temple, isn't he? Uh, What kind of a temple is he moving into when he moves into our life? There is a... um, There's a tension that happens within every believer. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. There's this tension that's created between our flesh wanting us to do one thing and the spirit wanting us to do something else. And at times, it can feel like we're being pulled apart. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? His members are literally at war. So how do we overcome this tension? Well, Galatians 5, verses 16 to 18, Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. How do we control the desires of the flesh? We walk in the spirit. And it sounds like such a simple thing, doesn't it? And... and Be careful to note that when he says to walk in the Spirit, this is an active command. This isn't go take a walk and then you're done. This is actively walking with the Spirit step by step. Uh, There are lots of uh, verses that talk about walking in relationship to God. I put together a slide for you guys. I don't expect you to write all these down, but if you want to take a picture, you can, I guess, if it's, uh, or or not. I'll just read them. (laughs) This is a really key slide, too. No, um... So consider these. In Romans, we see walking in purity. Same, same thing, walking in purity. 1 Corinthians, walk in contentment. 2 Corinthians, walk in faith or trust. 2 Thessalonians, walk separated. Ephesians talks about walking in good works, walking in humility, walking differently than the unconverted, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom. 3 John 1, verses 3 and 4, talks about walking in truth. The common glue that holds all of these separate things together, the thread woven through each one of these separate commands, is to walk in the Spirit. You can't have one without the other. Walking in the Spirit produces purity, contentment, good works, love, light, wisdom, truth. Galatians 5.16 is a blueprint for how we are to live our life as Christians. Walk in the Spirit, and then you will not give in to the desires of the flesh. That seems simple enough. 
There is a, um, an interesting thought that comes from this idea of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 17 to 19, catch this. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We are a temple because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Think about that. When I think about the holy temple, I think about King Solomon's temple. I think about this huge, ornate, beautiful, pristine, holy building with priests and all the dedications. The Bible talks about God being pleased with this temple and his spirit visibly filling the temple with his glory. That's, that makes sense to me when I think of a temple for the God's Holy Spirit. But for him to dwell within us, it's a strange thought. Because what happens when God moves into our lives? There's a side effect to having God dwelling within us. Um, we call it sanctification. You begin to see dirt on the floor, right? You begin to see trash in the corners. You begin to see cracks in the walls and cobwebs and peeling paint. It's almost like we were living our lives in complete darkness up to that point. And now with the Holy Spirit in us, the lights were turned on, and we can see all of these areas that need to be corrected. And we begin to clean them up. But not because a law is telling us to, but as a response to seeing them. Does that make sense? Not because a law is telling us to, but as a response. I think of it as a garden. I think of it as... Before faith, we all have this garden that's overgrown. It's full of thorns. Nothing good grows there. There's a broken fence going around it, and animals can come in and out whenever they want, and the grass is dry, and there's just dirt everywhere. But when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, and you begin to go through this sanctification process, you begin to pull those weeds. You begin to till the soil. You begin to water. What happens over time is that dead garden comes back to life. And it begins to grow, right? And something new happens. There is fruit that begins to grow that was not there before. Fruit begins to grow. And here's the cool thing about this. We live in a world today where we are surrounded by um, an unbelieving population who laughs at our faith, who thinks that the words of God are foolishness. Listen to any celebrities. Listen to Twitter, if you do. Listen to you know, social media. And we become a minority when you look at social media. They see it as foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that for those without the Spirit, it is foolishness. They can't understand it. You can sit and argue with somebody using logic and reason and evidence until you're blue in the face, and there are people that you will never convince that God is real and that he cares about us. However, if your garden is growing and you're producing fruit, a spiritually starving world cannot help but be attracted to fruit. And they're going to come to see what's going on, what's different about you. Without you saying anything, living your life the way that God has intended and growing into the person he created you to be becomes a living testimony to God. And when those people come to you and ask what's different, you don't have to convince them anything is different. They can see it. And we point them to Jesus. And it becomes real to them. 
Isn't that amazing? That God allows us to participate in the redemption of mankind simply by following and living and walking in the Spirit. Through sanctification, Holy Spirit reveals Scripture. He guides us. He becomes this great helper that Jesus promised. He truly does. Now, there's the other side to this. If you are living a life as a believer and you are not seeing that fruit grow, if you are not going through sanctification, maybe there are some weeds in the corner that you just ignore. Maybe there's some trash over here that you just don't worry about. Maybe that fence is broken and those animals keep coming in and we don't fix it and nothing grows, right? There is a great benefit to the enemy if he can keep us from growing our garden because each of us here, every single one of us, has a circle of influence, whether you know it or not. There are people in the world who you interact with, who see you on a daily basis probably, who can see your life And like I said before, your life, when you're living in a way where you're uh, producing fruit, when you're walking in the Spirit, they see that, especially if they knew you before faith. If they knew you before faith, they really see a difference. But just living in today's world, people are going to see a difference when you're producing fruit. They can't help it, right? If the enemy can keep us from producing fruit, and an unbeliever is looking at your life, and they're looking at their life, and they're not seeing much of a difference, what's going to convince them to want to add this Jesus thing on top of everything else they're dealing with. Especially when the world reflects what the culture tells them and they see Jesus and the message as foolishness. They see it as hypocrisy, hate, subjugation, restriction, not realizing that they are living under a yoke of slavery and Jesus' freedom. The enemy may have given up on the battle for your soul, but he is never going to stop fighting for the souls of those around you. And there are people in your life that I am never going to talk to, Pastor Steve is never going to talk to, who may never even go to church. In fact, we live a life in in which we, we feel like we'll be here forever, but for some of us, we may not be here tomorrow. And you may be the one person in their life who can show them who Jesus really is. And you don't have to prepare a big speech to do it. Are you guys catching this? Why this is so valuable? Walk in the Spirit and you will not give in to the desires of the flesh. Um, Pastor Jason, uh, my life, you don't know my life, and, and I, it's, it's, too, it's been too long. My garden's never going to grow, right? It's too dead. Is there such thing as a dead garden that can never grow? There's an experiment that was started in 1879 by a man named Dr. William Beale. There he is. Dr. Beal, he's famous for taking uh, corn and taking it from eight rows to 24 rows. So, superstar in botany, Dr. Beal. He began this experiment because uh, farmers had this issue. They would prepare their fields for crops. They would plant uh, the seeds. And as their crops were growing, all these weeds were growing up at the same time. And it didn't make sense because they were preparing the soil ahead of time. And they figured out it's because even though they had pulled all the weeds, there were seeds that were falling from those weeds. And the seeds were landing in soil that had not been fertilized. It was not really activated yet. And the the seeds were just kind of waiting. And once they activated that soil, all the weeds began to grow. So Dr. Beale's experiment was designed to figure out how long can a seed stay in dry ground and still be viable once you try to activate it. That's That's the nerdy experiment, right? But something awesome happens. So Dr. Beale takes 20 glass bottles... And he fills them with a mixture of dry sand and weed, 
uh, seeds, hundreds of them. He has 20 different varieties of the most common uh, growing seeds. And he buries them in the ground in secret, so nobody knows where they are. And he creates a treasure map to his bottles of, uh, of seeds. And every couple of years, he would go and dig one up. And this was the experiment. He would take the bottle, he'd pour it out onto a tray of soil and water it, and then wait to see what grew and document it. And after about 15 years of doing this, every few years he would do it, he retired, and he passed the experiment on to a younger group of scientists. They began doing it every five years. And eventually they started doing it every 10 years. Now they do it every 20 years because it's, such a, it's a finite resource having these seeds that have just been buried. And he buried them upside down so the water couldn't get in them. So they're just dry bottles of seeds. They were supposed to do the last one last year, but because of COVID, they pushed it to this year. And they opened up bottle number 16 about six weeks ago. Bottle number 16. The last time those seeds had been touched by human hands was 150 years ago by Dr. Beale. And they took and poured the contents of these seeds out onto a tray of soil. They watered them. They put them in the sunlight. And then this happened. Isn't God good? Those seeds were dried up. They were 150 years old. Does that growth look 150 years old? It looks brand new. They did not have to open the seeds up and add anything to them. They did not have to give them a special mixture of vitamins or chemicals. In fact, the seeds have not changed at all. What changed was the environment that you put them in. If I'm walking up to an orange tree from far away and it's full of oranges, I don't have to guess what kind of a tree it is, do I? Because I can tell by looking at the fruit. And if I take one of those oranges and I peel it, and I take a bite, and it's delicious and satisfying, and it gets all over my beard, right? It's wonderful. Everything that that tree needed to grow and produce that fruit was already inside that seed. Isn't that amazing? Life and history are divided by the birth of Christ, right? We have everything that's happened in history up until Jesus And we have everything that's happened in history since. Whether you're a believer or not, he has divided our history. Something similar happens in the life of a believer. When you come to faith, you have everything that has happened in your life up to that point. And you have everything that happens in your life after that point. Before faith, your seed was in this bottle of dry sand. Right? And that was life. After faith, your seed is now in fertile soil. And when you're walking in the Spirit, it's being watered, and it begins to grow. And you grow into what God created you to be. If you're listening to this today, if you do not have that um, experience of knowing what faith is, if you have not come to Jesus, I would encourage you to hold on to that question that's rising up in the back of your mind. Because it keeps coming up, doesn't it? before we become believers, before faith, there's this question that keeps coming up. It's something along the lines of, God, are you really there, and do you care about me? The enemy wants us to believe that this life and this world is the dry sand that our seed is in. That's life. The rest of this is foolishness. And we, do, and we believe that until we come to faith. Not realizing... That fertile soil is just on the other side of the side of that jar. 
separated by about an eighth of an inch of glass. Do not let anything stop you from accepting this gift that Jesus has given us, has given us because this fruit that you produce, Paul tells us, let's see, where are we at? Sorry, guys, this is my first Sunday sermon, by the way, so no refunds. <laughs> I was shanghaied into this. Um, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There is no law that can make fruit grow. You guys catching that? It is a response to walking in the Spirit. That fruit grows as a response to walking in the Spirit. I I love this verse. I think this is amazing. And Paul continues, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, walking step by step. We're going to have some prayer leaders at the front here and uh, some elders. If you guys have questions or or want to come up and pray with somebody, I would encourage you to do that. But I'm going to close this in prayer. I just really want to encourage those that may be watching this online or who are here today. Don't let anything stop you from growing that garden, right? The enemy doesn't want us to grow that garden. But there's a spiritually starving world that needs to see that. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to speak to your people. We stand here in awe of you, God. It is incredible to me to think that your Holy Spirit, who hovered over the dark waters before the creation of the world, God, who caused the winds to blow across Egypt and part the sea, who inspired the judges and the prophets and the authors of Scripture, Your Holy Spirit who filled visibly the temple of Solomon with your glory and pushed everyone out that that same Holy Spirit dwells within us. Amazing. Lord, help us to remember that no matter where we go in this life, no matter what we do or who we interact with or what we see or think or say, that you are with us. Help us to remember that you are with us and that you are guiding us. Help us to walk in your spirit. Help us to roll up our sleeves and to pull those weeds in our yards. If we feel like we're not close to you or your voice has gotten quiet and we're not sure what's going on, Lord, help us to look for those weeds that we can pull. Help us to grow and to thrive in this world. For your glory, Lord, we are sanctified. For our benefit and for a world that sees it and changes, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.